All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Genesis chapter 19. The two angels, same two angels from the last chapter, arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you'd like with them, but don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to be married to his daughter. And he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small, let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, very well, grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. And this is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all of those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroys the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old, 
There is no man around here to give us children, as is custom over all the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. And the next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you can go and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son. She named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. And this is the word that the Lord has for us today. You may be seated. So, in a room this size, it's not lost on me that there's people in this room that don't believe in Jesus, that aren't Christians. And I wanna say two things to you uh, first about this passage. This is maybe one of the Bible passages you do know about. In fact, it might be the one that you hate Christianity the most for or you doubt the scripture's authorities uh, for. Uh, But number one, I just wanna say I'm glad that you're here and and I hope that you can explore this passage with us this morning. Uh, And number two, I hope that you also see that whatever the cultural narrative is about a passage like this uh, that has been created, uh, that it's not only false, but it's hollow, it's shallow, um, and and it lacks the meaning, the true meaning behind this text. And then for the believer in the room, uh, can we just affirm something before we dive into the story that, that, that I know we all stand on? That when we come to God's word, uh, we believe that it is sufficient, that it is clear, uh, that it does not fail to accomplish its purposes, and that God is good. He is loving. Uh, he is just. He is holy. Amen? All right. Now to the story. The state of the world at this point is pretty depressing, which is the biggest understatement that I'll make all day. Lot's life is depressing. But I want to ask the question, how do we get here? And uh, if you've been with us walking through Genesis, we learned about Lot beginning in chapter 13, where Lot and Abraham, they move out of Egypt into Canaan, and they've accumulated this abundance of wealth. And so as they move into the land that God has for them, their shepherds literally start fighting because they have so much sheep and cattle and so much wealth that there's literally not space for both of them to coexist in the plain. And so Abraham is very kind to Lot and he looks to Lot and he says, hey, uh, like what piece of land do you want? And rather than stay near or at least adjacent to Abraham, the text tells us that Lot, Abraham's nephew, looks to the east. His eyes see the, the, the plain of Jordan, which consists of five cities, the two most notable of which are the ones that we hear about here in the text, Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he sees this plain, it looks like Eden to him. It looks like Egypt. And so Lot lusts after it after it he wants it so badly and so from chapters 13 until where we get to today he inches closer and closer first he pitches his tents near Sodom then he lives in Sodom and now we learn that Lot is sitting at the city gates of Sodom which at the very least means that he's ascended the ranks in city 
leadership. And rather than Lot taking hold of Sodom, what we have seen is that actually the very reverse has happened. Sodom has taken a hold of Lot, taken a hold of his family, taken a hold of his character. And because of this, there's actually a plant in that region named after Sodom. It's called Sodom's apple. In fact, I remember going on my first trip to Israel in 2016. We were walking a desert trail, and all of a sudden, you know, you know we have our camelbacks, but in that day, water would be sparse, food would be sparse, and so for a weary traveler in the desert, if they came upon one of these trees, um, which I think we have some slides here, um, of the trees. This is what a Sodom's apple tree looks like. You can see the lush green leaves and then right there you can see one of its fruit. So you'd come to this tree, you'd be so excited and you'd take hold of that fruit and what you'd notice immediately is how light it is. Very light. And then if you were to press your fingers just ever so gently into it, all of a sudden it would pop like a balloon. And on the inside, not only would you find that this thing that looks like this luscious fruit is empty, but if you were to eat those little fibers inside of the fruit, you'd realize very quickly as your body begins to shut down that it's not just empty, but it's poisonous. And isn't this how sin is in our lives? I mean, sin just, chef's kiss looks so good. That food, that drink, that relationship, that one more click. I mean, we all know the feeling. It's just, mm, it's like fruit in a desert and you just want it and you want to take hold of it. But then you take hold of it and you try to eat it and you realize so quickly that it's not just empty, it's poisonous and it will kill you. And this is how sin works. Sin is like this snake that will tell you the lie that God isn't enough, that you don't have enough, and so you need to take and eat for yourself, do what you want, make your life great by your means instead of trusting God. And just like lifestyle creep where you need more house, more car, more vacations, more money, there's also sin creep where sin grows and grows and grows until it's uncontrollable and it becomes this insatiable desire that can never be satisfied. But you do this long enough, eventually the consequences of Sodom and its apple will come banging down your door. And so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually two things. I think it's a display of the human heart, but also a display of God's character. It's a diagnosis of what's wrong with all of us in this room and a warning for us that choose not to repent. But it's also a beautiful picture of God's character. And I think you'll actually see that, that this is a beautiful picture of God's character. Because God is just. And hear me very clearly, if you hear nothing else this morning, you need to go home and take this to the bank. God is just, and he will punish sin. God is just, and he will punish sin. Sin, And I don't know where your mind goes when you hear me say that. You might be uncomfortable. But let me ask you, can your worldview make sense of a passage like this? Can your God make sense of a passage like this? Because if your worldview can't make sense of the most depraved acts, not justify them, but make sense of them, what kind of worldview do you even have? 
After all, look at our world, look at our lives. How do you explain the pain, the brokenness, the injustice, the depravity, the debauchery? See, the Bible makes sense of our depraved world. It doesn't justify it, but if you do not believe in a God of judgment, you have absolutely no hope for Sodom and you have no hope for your own life. And so as we learned, God tells Abraham well before this, like, I'm gonna judge this place. In chapter 18, he tells Abraham they have this exchange and God tells Abraham, hey, I'm gonna go down there. Like, God can see what's going on in Sodom already, but he says, I'll I'll go down there and I will investigate and see if the outcry against this city whose sin has become so flagrant is really what it's all made out to be. And the author is dropping a hint there that God is not just a judge, but he's a judge who doesn't judge hastily. He's going to investigate, get his hands in the mud, get in the middle of our human brokenness. And so what happens when God sends these two angels to investigate? Well, as these angels dressed as men come into the city, Lot starts looking a lot like his uh, uncle Abraham in chapter 18. He provides him, them with hospitality, a meal, albeit less generous than his uncle. And the angels are like, that's awesome, but we're gonna sleep in the city square tonight and Lot knows better than to let them do that. And so he says, believe me, you're gonna wanna be in my house tonight. I, I can't tell you why, but you're gonna wanna be there. And so finally, the angels accept this reality and so they walk into Lot's house and then we get verse four, which is an unequivocal <laughs> sentence on the whole city of Sodom because it says all of the men, both young and old, Surround Lot's house. And what does a depraved city like Sodom sound like? It sounds just like this rowdy mob outside their door. Bring us these men so that we can have sex with them. Sex, this beautiful covenant binding ceremony that we do with our bodies that was designed in the garden to be used between one man and one woman for life within the covenant of marriage with the express purpose of the act being a self-sacrificial service to another has slowly disintegrated in Sodom to the point where homosexual gang rape became a nightly routine. And I can hear your thoughts right now out loud in my head. This seems so far removed from our context today, but I can assure you that the spiritual dynamics that are going on and are at play here run straight through every single human heart in this room. We are all capable of this. But what's even more wild than this is Lot's response to the request. Lot goes, please, don't take these guys. Take my virgin daughters. And every half-awake dad in this room is going, I want to punch this little Lot in the face. (laughs) You despicable, tiny little man. How dare you? But what's even more interesting is their response Look at verse nine. These men take 
any suggestion of sexual activity other than their most preferred option as judgmental. Lot doesn't even do the right thing. He says, take my virgin daughters. But because he stands in the, in the way of the one thing that they really want to do, what do they say in verse 9? Get out of her way. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? Fill in the blank at the end of the sentence. We hear it all the time. Only God can. Wow, we're better than that. You know this, only God can. Yeah, is that true? Do you know the answer to that question? Well, it is true in one sense. Uh, but in another, you can take that down for now, I'll get there. Um, but uh, in another sense, it's not true. These men say, who are you to judge? Lot, how dare you stand in the way of what we want? And it sounds so much like today. People are often so offended, especially when it comes to sexuality, if you do not give them the full approval of their actions. In fact, if you don't approve of what I want, what I feel, what I think, then you are unforgivably judgmental. But this is Satan's work. The enemy loves to work in half-truths. But half-truths are still lies. And this lie is, is real to me because we have friends over at, the, at Crossroads that we had dinner with a couple weeks ago and we are asking them how they're, uh, how they're doing and we started talking about friendships and relationships and quickly it turned into a conversation where this couple's friendships with some of their close friends are starting to reach a friction point. And so me and my wife Mallory asked them, well, why is this reaching a friction point? And uh, they continue to express that uh, their relationships with some of their Christian friends uh, had grown sour because they looked at them like bigots and as judgmental people because they held to a biblical view on sexuality and they used the very words that are used in this text like, who are you to judge? Misguided Christians use this verbiage all the time when talking about affirming sexual sin as if it's some biblical trump card and nowadays if you dare stand on what the Bible says about sin you'll get a similar response than lots from the angry mob mad that you won't give them a thumbs up which is the second half of verse 9 we'll treat you worse than them they kept bringing pressure on lot and moved forward to break down the door but you know what the Bible says you're a Christian to judge. You should be judging constantly. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. When he's dealing with sexual sin within the church, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So Paul's saying, obviously, you can't disassociate from sinners. We're all sinners. You'd have to leave the planet to do that. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What businesses is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? But God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person 
from among you. Hear me very clearly. The judgment I'm talking about is not you standing over someone in judgment of their salvation or the state of their soul. But the judgment that Paul is talking about here is Christians holding other Christians accountable before the God of the universe for the truth that they claim to hold to and the lives that they choose to live. The judgment that Paul is talking about is holding our brothers and sisters accountable. You say you follow Christ. This is what it looks like. I am supposed to constantly judge you and you are to judge me for my good, to help me be sanctified in the Lord, to keep me from falling into sin because if all sin leads to death and destruction, how dare you not tell me when my life is veering off the tracks? That's not love. But we live in this fluffy world where God is just this God of tolerance and acceptance But the gospel is not that God accepts you as you are. The gospel is that God gives you a place to nail your sin and then be made new so that you're a new creation. But if you are a Christian in the name of not being judgmental and love and affirm sin, what you are really doing is telling people to walk right into Sodom, through the city gates, into the city square, and pitch their tents there, where they will live in a perpetual state of sin leading to judgment, death, and separation from God. That's what's going on here. The church welcomes the worst of sinners. I'm one of them. Paul, the murderer, The apostle was one of them. All of the disciples were one of them. But with the emphatic words made famous by Jesus, go and sin no more. Because there is a world of difference when the church is a place of refuge for refugees fleeing Sodom and the church being a big sign saying, Go right into Sodom. You can live there. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. God won't judge. We are supposed to be a hospital for the sick. We are not supposed to inject them with more sickness. And this is what the church is doing so many places today. But even with the invitation to freedom for Lot, he lingers But before I go there, rather than you think that I'm just up here doing this to you, I lived in Sodom for 10 years of my life, pornography addiction, and it hollowed me out to a shell of a human being. And by God's grace, I've been free for over a decade. Yeah, but it's all God. But there's a bunch of you in this room that are addicted. I know you are. (laughs) I know the culture we live in. And this is not a uh, statement of judgment. But listen to me, especially you men. You flee. Get the heck out of Sodom. It will kill you. It will kill you. It will kill your marriage. Do not play with fire and then wonder why you're burned. Sexual sin is not a joke, which is so interesting because, you know, what 
Lot's sons-in-law say to him when he finally accepts the reality that God's going to judge this place and he goes to his sons-in-law and he says that God's going to judge? They say they thought that Lot was joking. They think Lot's joking. And this is really a tragic moment in the story because many people think that God's judgment is just a joke. But the first question I have to ask is why did Lot's son-in-laws think that he was joking? And as I thought about it, it's probably because of how morally compromised Lot had become in Sodom. Lot has become so compromised by the ways of Sodom that by the time he wakes up to the reality of a God who judges and tells the people in his family, they've so witnessed his life that they, they don't believe him. His witness had become worthless. Lot's witness to them had become utterly worthless. And I'm here to ask you, like, what is your witness worth? What is your witness worth? How much Sodom do you have in you? See, Lot's MO was how, how close to the fire can I get? How deep into Sodom can I go before I get burned? But as a result, what does Lot's life amount to? This really becomes Lot's legacy. He has no influence, no kingdom impact, and a bad reputation. And yet I see so many churches, Christian schools even, Christian institutions that are playing this game today. How can I maintain a relationship with God and friendship with the world? And all the while, these churches, these institutions, these schools, their witness dwindles and dwindles and dwindles till it's just about as worthless as Lot's. God's word to them is a joke. God's law is a joke. God's judgment is a joke. And all the while, God himself becomes this big joke and we need to be careful that we don't also become this. Because Lot is saved by the skin of his teeth, but his clothes still reek of the stench of hell. But the reality is that the judgment of God will always be a joke to some people. In fact, I think that this is part of the root sin at Sodom's core. In fact, Ezekiel says as much in Ezekiel 16 where he says this is the, Sod this is the sin of Sodom. They were three things. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And the result of this arrogance, they did not help the poor and the needy. The city reeks of selfish ambition. Everyone is living for themselves, all at the expense of the marginalized. So if the fruit of Sodom is their sexual sin, the real root of their sin is their arrogance, pride, and blind prosperity. Life is all about me. I want. I feel. I think. Therefore, I do. I want that. I like that. I feel that. Therefore, I'm going to do it. And you pour prosperity onto that type of mentality, that type of arrogance, and you get the culture that we're in today. Look at us Americans. We're so happy. We're so fulfilled. We have so much money, so much sex at our fingertips. Life's great. No, it's... it's it's poisonous. This culture that we have created is, is, is poisonous. It's, it's toxic because when you build a culture that's all about me and my wants, the results are greed, violence, 
and sexual promiscuity, always. And that's why the judgment of God to the marginalized, to the victims of these types of crimes in Sodom is gospel. These are the people in verse 13 crying out to God. This is why God says, there will be no more. So the judgment of God to the young woman who's been abused or trafficked five times this week, or the young boy who's been chemically castrated or mutilated in the name of love and gender-affirming care, and then wakes up when they're 16 to the reality that their body has been mangled and they have no shot of having children. They cry out for the judgment of God. Or the little boy that loses a mother to murder or a family that loses generations to a holocaust. They want a God of judgment. But it's us in the first world with first world problems and privilege and comfy lives that can't accept a God like this. We can't tolerate a God like this. But to the victim, to the person being oppressed, to the person who's been sexually assaulted, they cry out, God, when are you gonna judge? And God is gracious. He will put an end to their pain. He will put an end to the sin. He is just and he will punish sin. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Like a father who just loves his kids so much and his heart bleeds that they keep being sinned against, God, as a good father, says enough is enough is enough. And so God brings punishment on Sodom and he destroys it. And oh, does God want you to know that he's the one doing it because in verse 24, there's this mini chiasm which we've learned about before. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. God wants you to know that he does this. And meanwhile, Lot and his family are spared. Lot's wife lingers, another notch in Lot's horrendous leadership and she's caught up in the destruction of the city and for those of you that are still surprised or even off put by God's judgment I want to ask you another question but how many of you are surprised by God's mercy to save Lot because if you are not equally as surprised by God's mercy to save Lot, then you haven't read this story. Would you save Lot? I wouldn't. I'd be like, boom, smoke him. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. You would too. You're all thinking it. You read this story and you're like, just zap him. All right, Lord, if that was irreverent, you know my heart. Forgive me. But one of the things that we don't talk about, you know, when we, we make these judgments, like I would never act like God in this scenario is number one, it exposes our human arrogance to assess the problems of the world. But number two, it's a completely defective view of God. But not only that, when we talk about sin, because we're in such a humanist culture, we often only think about sin in terms of the consequences that it has on another human being. Which is interesting because the Bible doesn't talk this way. Obviously, human beings are victims to our sin, but even when David sins with Bathsheba and commits adultery with her, in the Psalms, what did he say? Against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. See, we oftentimes forget that the person that we're really sinning against is our Heavenly Father, who is holy, perfect, just, 
and righteous. And when we act in a sinful manner, we are not representing him as his image bearers. And that breaks his heart. But in all of this, God is still merciful to Lot. And, 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 and this tells me that God is actually far more just, far more merciful, far more loving than I could ever be. So even if you leave here still a little disturbed by God's judgment, you need to also leave here with just as much wonder about God saving Lot. Because God saving Lot ultimately points us to the major picture of the Bible, the major thrust of the Bible when it comes to dealing with sin. That judgment and salvation are two sides of the exact same coin. The judgment and salvation are two sides of the exact same coin. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not about sexual sin. It's a part of it, but it's about sin in general, which is why we have to be tough right now on sexual sin because it's one of the only sins that the church is saying this is okay. Because if all sin leads to death and destruction, we gotta stand in the way and say, no, that's not good. But the story of Sodom is about their sin and what God must do to all sin. He has to punish it, but he also can save. But more than even rescue someone, God can and will redeem someone. And this redemption is God buying back anything in our life for his purposes. It means that if God redeems all the bad that I have done and all of the bad that has been done to me, can be taken back and be used by God for his glory. In fact, spoiler alert, this is the message of Genesis. From chapter one until the end, it's God taking our filth, our stupid decisions, and making roses out of them somehow. And he does that in this passage as well. Now I know what you're thinking. Where are you gonna pull this rabbit out of? There certainly doesn't seem to be a silver lining here. And to that I would say, just wait. Because as we come to verses 30 through 38, we come to the conclusion of this passage and we're given this kind of strange little saga at the end where the once rich, rich man, Lot, the man of prominence in, in Sodom, has now become a poor cave dweller up in the mountains and he's with his two daughters and his daughters are looking at their dad and they're saying, well, we have some justifiable means for why we're gonna commit the sin we're about to commit to you. We don't have any family lineage. It's a really big deal. And so they get together and they say, well, why don't we get dad liquored up? And then when he blacks out, let's sleep with him and uh, get pregnant and then we can preserve our family line. And so on back-to-back -back nights, uh, Lot's two daughters sexually assault their dad while he's drunk. He doesn't even remember it the next day. And uh, they both become pregnant. But isn't this also how sin works in our families? Like it just gets passed from one generation to another generation if we don't put our foot in the ground and say enough's enough. Adultery, alcoholism, addiction, abuse just gets passed from one generation to one generation because it's a lot easier to get Lot and his family out of Sodom than it is to get Sodom out of the family. And so the text ends with 
these peculiar details which give us the hint to an absolutely stunning way that ultimately the sins of Sodom, Lot, and his daughters cannot overcome God's redemptive plan. So in verse 36 and thir- through 38, it says this, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. And anytime the text gives details like this, you have to ask the question, why? Uh, and it's no wonder, based on this story, that, that we now know, as we read the biblical text, why the Israelite people looked down on the Moabites with so much shame. Because they know exactly where this family started, in that cave. But what's unbelievable is that if you keep reading in your Bible, you'll come to a book named Ruth, who is one of the great heroines of all of scripture. And what do we learn about Ruth? She's a Moabite. What? And she shines in the Old Testament. And yet she doesn't just shine in the Old Testament. She shines in the New Testament. And right at one of the greatest junctures in God's redemptive plan, there's Ruth again showing up on center stage. And at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the first verse says that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then we're given this little resume of Jesus. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Also, if you know anything about Rahab, that's kind of incredible. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. So Ruth's there. She's a Moabite in the genealogy of the Messiah. And then you've got Rehoboam, which if you know anything about Rehoboam, his mommy is Nama, who's an Ammonite, which means that God with flesh and bones, is gonna come to this earth and walk around and teach people and make disciples with blood running through his veins that is a direct result of the very sins that he came to pay for. And he puts it on his resume. He's not ashamed of it. He can redeem it. And see, this is how corrupt the thinking of the world is. Even with things as heinous as rape and incest, They say there are just certain sins that are wholly irredeemable to God. There are certain sins that are just far out there that cannot be redeemed by God, but not with our God. Our God takes the bastard sons of a one-night blackout, incestuous sex romp between Lot and his two daughters, and he says, I want that back, and I want it back for my glory, and I want it now. And then he's not ashamed to put it in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, right in his genealogy. Yep, Ruth's in there. Yep, Rehoboam's in there. Which means that when Jesus takes the full force of God's wrath on the cross, he's got both Ammonite and Moabite blood running through his veins. Is anyone else stunned by this? This is our God. Don't you dare tell me that you bring anything into this room that God can't take back and redeem for his purposes. 
But, but, you must repent. You must repent. And don't take my word for it. Take it from Jesus, who says this in Luke 17. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And here's the key verse. It will be just like this. This is Jesus saying this. The day the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day, no one who is on a housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And here is the beauty of the Lot and Sodom story. It's perfectly balanced in grace and truth. Because if God judges, that means for anybody in this room who has been victimized, by something as horrible as sexual assault, there is a God who sees and he will judge. But in the scandal of God's grace, there's also hope for the victimizer, which is really difficult, but it's true. There's hope for the victimizer because God will judge sin and he judges his own son the full wrath comes down on him. And then the only question left to answer is not, will God punish sin? God promises that he will. But do you want to carry it? Or do you want to give it to Christ? So for the non-Christian in the room, there's another judgment day coming. I say this with love for you, Repent, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you, he gave himself for you. He will run to you the moment you turn and flee Sodom. And for the Christian in this room, you are already justified in Christ. But if you're living in Sodom, if you're playing with Sodom, it is slowly hollowing you out to a shell of a human being. And all you can do is you run. You just run. You get out of there. And you keep running until you collapse into your Redeemer's arms as he receives you with his grace and mercy. Because in the New Testament, if we turn to Peter's letters, we learn that Lot is considered righteous. And you go, how? It's because we have a God who redeems and who hands us his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of your word. We stand in awe of your truth. And we stand in awe of the gospel that doesn't just save us, 
but takes back everything bad that has been done to us and everything bad that we have ever done and buys it back for your purposes. And if you, Lord, were not ashamed of the Moabites and the Ammonites, then we can know that you are not ashamed of us. But Lord, I just pray that right now we would see repentance as an act of freedom, not as an act to be ashamed about. One that says that we trust you, that we know that we are forgiven, that we know that we are loved, and therefore we can come before your throne of grace, confess our sins, and receive forgiveness. And Lord, I pray for anyone that is struggling and trapped in Sodom in this room this morning, that they would seek the help, which there is plenty of at Crossroads Bible Church. They would find community, find resources, find a pastor, find each other, and help rescue one another by God's grace from the Sodoms in our life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.